Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. And with me today, I have Neil Briggs from BAC Mono. Hi, Neil. Hey. Hey, Sam. Great right, to be can here. you tell everyone a little bit about who you are and, and what you do? Yeah. So my name is uh, my name is Neil Briggs with my brother, Ian. We're the two co-founding directors at BAC, or Briggs Automotive Company. And we founded the company back in March 2009. So incredibly, uh, we're almost coming up to what well, we've just surpassed, actually, our 11th um, anniversary. Yeah, and in essence, Ian and I started a company on the back of a very successful automotive design consultancy based in Germany, working for all of the major German-based manufacturers across various disciplines. My background is uh, I'm an engineer, so I studied at Manchester University, mechanical engineering, and then specialised in my final year in terms of a, uh, an automotive-based project. And Ian studied at uh, Coventry University, which was, mm. I think, the first university in the world to uh, to have a course for uh, industrial design, but transportation specialised. So uh, it's almost, if you like, the artist and the engineer coming together. And so that was a successful business. We worked on so many different areas of various different cars, whether that be mass produced, low volume, luxury, sporty. As you can imagine, the, the share of the disciplines was quite straightforward with the engineering side, obviously with myself and then yeah. the more kind of styling interior exterior type stuff, which was, which was Ian's area. And of course, over sort of 20 years, you build up a, experience in all these different areas you build up experience of working with various different suppliers and you also build up a reputation so when you decide in the middle of arguably the, the world's biggest financial downturn in 2008 to, to start a car company when we started to knock on the suppliers doors and said hey can you help them the answer was was a resounding yes so you know, that's how everything started and amazingly at the beginning of the project it was just Ian and myself. He was sat around his kitchen table in Stuttgart, and I was around my kitchen table in 
in Cheshire and we started to bounce around this concept for for the car and and that's that's how the company started what uh what you led led you towards a single seater like specifically what how did you what problem sort of did you come up with or what were you missing to go let's make this car it's a great question actually and i think the, the the short answer is is that it was a singularity of purpose. All of the vehicles that we as mere mortals drive on a on a daily basis have to do various different functions. Everything from practicality to, in my case, you know, dropping off kids, picking up kids, having fun, uh, interesting driving experience, carrying luggage, multiple passengers, comfort on long journeys, short journeys, all these various different attributes. And we said, wouldn't it be fantastic if there was a car that was designed just for the sole purpose of of driving? And very much like motorbikes, actually, in that case. You know, if you look at a Dugatti Panigale, nobody looks at it and says, where's the passenger going to go? <laughs> yeah. um, you know, where am I going to put my my weekend, you know, storage or anything? It's This is a bike. It's quite clearly just for the enjoyment of riding a motorcycle. And, and of course, the car industry has many, 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 many niches. But really, when it gets down to high-performance cars, we've kind of hit a bit of a dead end, or we haven't really progressed beyond the kind of two-seat GT mm. supercar, as we call it. At the time, I was heavily involved with racing, won various British championships and was racing in Europe. And certainly, I wouldn't have stood around my race car uh, over a gin and tonic in the evening in the garage and showed it off to somebody because it was a race car, right? So if it was a bit ratty and panels didn't fit very well, it was fine because it was a race car. And, and, and likewise... You know, any nice cars that we, that we had, you'd never take them on a, on a track day because it's going to get covered in stone chips, you're going to break the brakes and all these different things. So we said, wouldn't it be great if there was this car that existed that was equally at home on the racetrack as it was on the road? And all it was about was about driving. And that's where the concept came from. And it was really interesting because obviously as brothers and as, as, as if you like the engineer meeting the artist, there's always going to be this overlap of, of differences of opinion, which actually we get on great in that respect. But there was never, ever any discussion of whether it was one C or tandem or two C or side by side or threes. It was, there was never any discussion. It was, it was a single seat because yeah. the single seat formula has evolved, what, over 60, 70, 80, 90 years. The engine has been side by side. The engine's been in the front. It's been in the back. It's been mid-engined and so on. And the formula layout has been optimized over many, many, many years because it's the best for performance and, and simply that's that's where we started and it's great because you know all of the discussions that we have you know throughout our our 10 11 year history it always comes down to one single focal point it's about performance if it doesn't enhance performance or the ownership experience the driving experience then we just we just don't do it and that usually means that most of the decisions are based around you know weight saving increasing performance and making the car even better it's great to have that singularity of focus from a a sort of design specification perspective because normally it would be, well, yeah, we can do this, but we're going to lend, we're going to lose some, some luggage carrying capacity or we're going to co- compromise comfort, you know, on a normal car. There just aren't any compromises to make in that sense. So it's, it's, it's great. When you're coming up with these ideas and stuff and you're, you're attacking it from a sort of engineering point of view and your brother's the design is that is, is that's how you split it? Well, that is what you guys do. Yeah, right? I, I mean, I mean, d- design is a is a is a is a is a terminology that's used in the car industry predominantly for for styling. And, and designers mm. hate being called stylists because they think that <laughs> they carry a pair of scissors and uh, and wear frilly shirts. But but joking aside, you know, I mean, engineers are designers. It's just that they're more preoccupied with function as opposed to form. 
And I think the great thing with this car is, is again, taking the superbike analogy, you know, you look at a superbike and you look at the front of it, it's predominantly bodywork, there's fairing, yeah. there's, there's some front forks and, and, and so on. And then as you start to move towards the back of a, a, a superbike, you see more and more of the mechanicals. The mechanical is part of the aesthetic. And so therefore, you know, I've always had an eye of, of about what I like to see. I don't know why I like it. And if there's something wrong with it, I don't know how to change it to make it better. That's why, mm. you know, a designer or a stylist are as good as what they do. And consequently, you know, in terms of the function and making it the best that it can be, then that's where the engineers know what they want as well. And it's a question of, of, of how do we just make this entire package work in unison. And I think that's what's so great about the fact that Ian and I had worked together on so many different projects and, and part of bigger project teams, of course, that we had this kind of understanding of who always had the final word on something, mm. uh, you know, whether it was left or right. And not with any animosity ever. It was always a question of, okay, fair enough, you know, and I think the great thing about the entire innovation team that we've got here at BAC is that, again, because it's all about performance, it's, okay, it, is what we're doing, well, you know, is it, is it going to improve performance? You know, and ultimately it's about that, but also it's about the form enhancing the function. We all know that you've got to look at it and go, wow, yeah, I want, it, I want, I want that, you know. And it does look cool. I remember the first time I saw it. I don't, when did you launch it? So the, the car one. was the car was uh, launched at Retro Classics in March 2011, and first deliveries were, were 2012. Yeah, I remember it just like when it came out. You're just like, what the hell? There's this single seater thing. It looks mad. Do you do you have a lot of issues like nowadays? People always design stuff for pedestrian protection and stuff like that. Do you get to fly under that radar because of your production numbers, or do you have to design for safety, external safety? I mean, I wouldn't say that we, we, we get to fly under the radar. I think the regulations are written very sympathetically based on the number of cars, which obviously yeah. then translates to risk and sizes of companies. So I, I think the regulations are very appropriate. Yes is the, sh- is the short answer. There's a, it, certainly in the UK, there's about 52 different legal requirements. Mm. Um, that can be everything from a radius of, a, of, a, of an external surface through to wheel arch apertures, lighting positions, vision, uh, safety and so on and so forth. So, you know, design is all about managing compromises ultimately. Yeah. And, 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 the, and it starts absolutely with the regulations and it starts with, with safety and then it works down from there. And actually, very interestingly, you know, the actual layout of the car, you know, we started off with a mannequin. You, you know, you look at, you can't have the, the, the driver's feet going past, protruding past the, uh, the axle sensor line. So that kind of defines that position. You put a mannequin of various different proportions in, and then you put a four-cylinder engine and a six-speed Hewlett and gearbox, and before you know it, you've got you've got your wheelbase. That's kind of, that's kind of straightforward in, in inside view. And then from in plan view, you look at it and say, right, well, the wheels have to be covered. Certain parts of the wheels have to be covered, and then you you define what you, what, what you call in design engineering terms as your hard points, effectively rollover protection lighting positions, wheel arches, and, and, and. And before you know it, you've got kind of like a basic layout. And then, of course, it's all about where the inspiration comes from, from the aesthetic, the external aesthetic. And that that's very, very difficult for what is a brand new product. Most yeah. most things that exist are an evolution of an existing design. And when someone comes along with something that's completely new, like the iPod, yeah, you know, people are going to compare it to a Sony Walkman, for example. Yeah. And so, you know... In our case, it was, it, you know, we were, I'd say we, we obviously hit the, hit the nail on the head with the, with the overall styling. But the hardest thing has probably been the new car because that's the kind of second album and 
uh, it's an evolution of the first car. So the first car, because it's a revolution, you kind of, you know, you've got, you've got some, you've got some latitude there to kind of do what you want. Whereas the second car, it's a bit like the 911. It's, it's really, really difficult to keep evolving it over time. Yeah. And that's been the biggest challenge with the new car, I'd say. What's, what sort of thing has evolved over the years from car number one? Cause there was, it was quite a, a lot of evolution, even just within mm. the first car from the beginning to the end, wasn't there? Yeah, sure. So the first car had a 2.3 litre four cylinder engine that was, that was made by Cosworth. Uh, Cosworth were very active in Formula One. We felt when we launched the first car, cause no one had heard of BAC, that it needed to have named brands on the car, you know, the AP racing brakes and, and Cosworth engines, et cetera. Um, so the first car had a 2.3 litre, 280 brake horsepower, 280 newton metre of torque engine. The second generation then went to a 2.5, 305 brake horsepower, 310 newton metres of torque, so significantly more, a lot more mid-range torque. There were various different features which we'd added in terms of options, listening to the customers in terms of some of the things that they wanted to see. Right up, up until the, the version that we're building right now, we have been for the last two and a half years, which is what we in, internally call Mono W. So that, that means the wider chassis yeah. externally looks the same, but we basically made it uh, to accommodate bigger people, uh, larger oh, okay. people. So there's, 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 there's wider, wider space in the cockpit. We now have offered a made to measure seat that's molded to the driver, made to measure steering with a lot more personalization. And so there's been effectively three different versions before any of the, the mono R that you saw at Goodwood or indeed the, the all new mono, which sort of was launched at Geneva pool, as we called yeah. it. So yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of, a lot of modifications uh, and iterations throughout yeah. the process. So you're saying that it, are all of the new cars wider or is it an option to have a slightly narrower or slightly wider? So the, so, so no, the, the, the current car that we produce, if you go for the made to measure seat option, and yeah. obviously you need a made to measure seat because the standard seat doesn't fit you because you're a larger person. And I mean by large, I just mean that you're probably bigger than six foot. Yeah. Uh, you know, six foot six, I think is the biggest guy that we've got in the car. And Dynamerica's 240 pounds, six foot six. He's just a big wow. guy. Yeah. So that just gives them more shoulder room, more elbow room and means that they can fit in the car. Some other interesting features as well that we've evolved over the years so that we had a conventional uh, handbrake system that, that was installed in the top of the cockpit for taller drivers. It's where their knees. Yeah. Uh, used to clash so by deleting that and going to an electronic parking brake we basically yeah, found a bit more real estate in the cockpit so they're the kind of things that we've that we've evolved over the years really but yeah the, the car we make at the moment it, it, it's it's kind of one size fits all with that made to measure seat really mm. i remember i came down to see you guys at where was it spa yeah and drove i think i drove an earlier one and then yeah. a later one and it just driving it round a track I've never driven a single seater other than like a go-kart having then been out. I think I've been out in my M2 and then went out in the mono. And it's just completely different. Just like a whole different ball game to driving any other car on track. I was, I was quite astounded by just that single seat experience. It just doesn't compare to anything else. And when people ask you about it, you're like, well, it's just different. Like it's just something different. And until you've tried it, you can't really explain it. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, first of all, sitting in the middle, you, know, you find with, with any normal saloon car left or, 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 or supercar left or right hand drive, you find there's a personal preference as to which way you want the corner to go just based on your body position in the car. You feel more comfortable. It reacts differently. And that's not just because of weight and weight distribution. So 
first of all, you're sat in the middle and there's this neutrality of performance left and right. And then secondly, of course, you've got no A pillars or B pillars or rear view mirrors to, to obstruct your view. You've just got this entire, you know, vision of the landscape that's the, that without any intrusions. And you just feel at one with the car. And particularly on the track is where it, it all comes to life, of course, because, you know, the, the, the kind of rawness of the driving experience all, experience all makes sense when you go on the track and, and it takes you just into a completely different zone, of course, with the, you know, with the, with the flat shifts that you do and the, and the blip on the down change, you know, it's, I'm just thinking about it now. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's too long since I've been because this damn, this damn virus, but you know, it's, it, it is, it is a very, very unique experience. And it's very hard to explain in words. That's why some of our on, our onboard footage that we post usually gets so well supported because it's an opportunity for people to really understand what it's like to be the driver yeah yeah i remember one of the standout things when i first saw one i saw one in monaco i don't know i think it was down maybe for a show or something and i just heard the guy changing the gears and you just get that what was the decision process for going for that gearbox versus a more conventional so. Yeah, no, great, great question. So the gearbox, which is from Hewland, weighs 40 kilos and it changes gear in, in 45 milliseconds. Uh, so it's a manual gearbox. It has six speed. It's a six speed sequential gearbox, very, very similar to a motorbike. Um, it has straight cut gears in it. Uh, and all of that is, is built and designed around reducing transmission losses. So the yeah. power that's created by the engine and what that translates ultimately down, down on the, on the wheels. The very compact gearbox. It's also very expensive, uh, but you don't get something for nothing. And it's, it can be operated by a manual gear shift in, in the cockpit. And indeed, uh, Formula 3 cars used to have that system before yeah. they went to, to a paddle system. The paddle system is, uh, is driven via a compressor that's positioned underneath the gearbox with an accumulator. And it basically uh, compresses the system and fires the actuator that you've been, you've been talking about that quite similar to a gunshot actually it is and and it's interesting because when we first heard it we thought wow it, it's quite unrefined but it's actually become something that really defines the car i think yeah a bit like the neutral button because of course with it being a, a sequential gearbox you have to take it out of first gear normally you would do that with a lever and you just push it forward into neutral yeah. and so there has to be something that fires the gear into neutral and of course as a as a safety aid, if the car was running and, and someone was outside the car, you wouldn't want to be able to reach in and, and pull the paddle and the car would fire off down the road. So there's the neutral, <laughs> yeah. there's the neutral button strategically placed. You have to do it with two hands. And a lot of the feedback we've got from customers is that it's a real nuance of, 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 of how you interact with the car. Yeah. To, 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 to pull away. But it's, uh, it, 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 you know, it's a common denominator in terms of supply that we've, that we've had since the beginning. We're up to what car 120 now across 40 countries. And it, it's a very robust gearbox, very robust gearbox. When you said it weighs, what did you say, 45 kilos? Something 40 like kilos, yeah. 40 45, kilos. Mi- 45 milliseconds to change gear, yeah. What does, what does like a, I don't know, like a 458 gearbox weigh? Well, yeah, great question. So, okay, so double clutch. Or kind of standard DSG gearbox weighs about a hundred to one hundred and ten kilos. Okay, which is the same weight as our entire engine. <laughs> um, and I think the other point to make as well is that the gearbox is fully structural. Okay, so all the gearbox loads are fed into the gearbox casing. So normally, a conventional car that you know probably most of your most of your listeners are, um, drive on the road. You'll have an engine that's mated to a gearbox and those two will fit in a subframe 
which is a, a, a metallic structure that is then bolted to a body structure. And so you have all these overlaps of, of, of interfaces that all have weight complexity. And so the, by feeding the suspension loads directly into the gearbox, we reduce the number of components down to an absolute minimum. That's one of the reasons how we keep the weight of the car down as low as we do. Do you do that in other areas of the car as well? Yeah, I mean, the gearbox is probably the best example of it. So, an example, the engine is is what we call semi-structural. So, if you look at a Formula One car, the engine bolts directly to the back of the bulkhead and it's part of the structure. It forms the, the torsional vertical yeah. lateral uh, bending stiffness of the car. We still have some of the chassis structure that comes around it. So, we say that the engine is solidly mounted. It doesn't sit in a subframe that's then bolted into the car. And, you know, to be fair to, 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 to the way how everyone else does it, you know, apart from Mercedes with the Project One, of course, which also has a solidly mounted engine, they do it for comfort reasons. You know, so most car engines sit on engine mounts, which are isolated to, to isolate, you know, noise, vibration and harshness. Yeah. Because our car is all about performance. That's the, the one attribute that's fairly low down the, the pecking order. As I say, it's designed about a trade-off and ultimately for, for weight and performance, it's, it's it's what we trade off against NVH. Yeah, it's definitely some. That's another thing you definitely notice, like along with the gearbox, is how the engine sort of feels like it's bolted to the back of your head. <laughs> <laughs> and you get all of those vibrations yeah. and everything. In terms of like engineering and manufacturing processes and stuff like that, has that changed quite a lot since the beginning to now? And are there are a lot more, some processes you're using a lot more now that basically weren't available stuff like that yeah i mean that's that's a good question i mean i think we since we moved so back in the day we were based in cheshire in a in in, in a very small environment to keep overhead low we were approached by by the mayor of liverpool and, and his regeneration team to move to liverpool of course synonymous with car production for almost 60 years so we were more than happy to come to liverpool it's a great place to, to do business and a, a great place in terms of supply chain access to people and mm. skills but yeah, I mean, when, when we did, we, we started to re-look because obviously we then moved into an 11,000 square foot facility and we could essentially start from blank sheets of paper. So the way the car is now put together, it's been evolved with the various teams who build the car and we build the car in three different modules. So we start off with what we call the driver safety cell, which is the, the chassis. And we basically build up all the components in there from the fuel tanks, the wiring harnesses, steering column, pedal boxes, etc. On the front, we basically have what we call our storage box, which also serves as a deformable structure in terms of crash, um, various different reservoirs, um, what we call our ship plate, which basically um, encloses the structure across the front of the car, anti-roll, bar suspension, mounting points, and so on. That's the front end module, the driver safety cell, which is in the middle. And then the rear of the car, essentially, we've got a complete gearbox assembly. Very, very similar to a Formula car. In fact, it's, it's, it's exactly inspired by the way uh, um, Formula cars are put, put together. In a separate area in the factory where we build all our sub-assemblies, the gearbox is put together with all of the, the suspension arms on it, and it comes on a, a marriage trolley. The engine goes in solidly mounted as i said the bell housing goes on which is effectively the interface between the engine and the gearbox and this complete rear end of the car just just gets wheeled in and gets married up so the car goes from looking almost like a kind of uh you know a bare chassis to 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 what we call a rolling chassis in about three weeks which is and and that process has, has evolved and got better and better and better over the over the years but I think the big, you know, the big thing really for us that we've embraced, particularly in the last sort of two, three years, of course, is, is the whole graphene story. 
which which started way back from my my old university back at Manchester, and that's the real big technology thing that we I think we've embraced. So there's two things there really with with process and 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 some some new technology that we've embraced. Can you tell me tell me a bit more about that? What is the what are you doing with graphene? So um, so yeah, graphene is is a singular molecular layer of of carbon molecules. And essentially what it does is it enhances the structural properties of, of, of carbon fiber. So think of it a little bit like adding sugar or, or, or flour into a cake mix or your, or mm. your coffee. And it theory enhances the flavor or the mechanical properties in this case. So what happens is the fabric, I think most people be familiar, be familiar with how carbon fiber yeah. is woven as a, as a fabric. That's made just down the road in Runcorn. And then the the resin is made by by Bitres, who are also just down the road. That then goes to what's called a prepregger, a company called FHD. And what they do is they basically prepregnate the uh, resin into the fabric. That gets put on a roll, and that then goes to our molder who, who makes the parts. With graphene, what happens is is the the graphene stock gets added to the resin, so that when when that resin then gets pressed into the carbon as part of the prepreg process. Therefore, the graphene is also in that in that in yeah. that uh, fabric as well. So that what then happens is is the molder he doesn't know really any different. He takes the fabric, uh, he puts it on his gerber. The gerber cuts out all the various different patterns. The patterns get laid up in the mold, a bit like watching your, your mother or your grandma baking a cake. Mm. Put all the pieces in the mold. That then goes into the autoclave, and the part comes out. So really, they don't know any different whether or not it's got graphene in it yeah. or not. But the real key thing is is that. Because it's enhanced the structural property, it means that we can reduce the numbers of layers okay. of carbon that we've got in the part. So in some cases, we've gone from three down to two or four down to three. Yeah. just depends. There's a like-for-like stiffness. And we've managed to save over 10 kilos on the body structure, which, you know, is, is over 20%. So it's, it's a huge saving. And, you know, we're still, we're still learning about it. The more cars you make, the more, the more we produce, the more some of the little nuances that we, we start to mm. pick up on. But, um, you know, generally speaking, it's a huge win-win and not just one for the, for the niche volume car industry. I mean, we've, we've had conversations with people in other sectors, aerospace and so on and so forth, because it is a technology that, that will, it is scalable and it will roll out across other different sectors and help to reduce carbon emissions ultimately, not just in cars, but aircraft, boats. Yeah you know, you name it. So it, it really is a major breakthrough. And I think it's something that, you know, f- from our perspective, it's, 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 you know, innovation is, is the focus of what we do here mm. because lightweight translates immediately to a performance enhancement. You know, for us, it's all about lightweighting and, and, and that's why graphene has been so influential there. We've also started looking at other nanoparticle materials like niobium. Okay. Uh, What's that? They they do what graphene does to composites uh, in metals. So okay. again, again the same argument that you can use thinner gauge materials. You know, um, so there's some there's some really cool applications that we we, we hope the world to be able to see mm. in the next sort of two years. I think uh, coming cool. through, and it's great to, to to be able to have you know the time and the resource to be looking at these things because it's our belief that. You know, the world at the moment is looking for an easy fix in terms of emissions, and, and clearly yeah. EVs are, are that solution. But what you can't get around is that they still weigh three tons. Yeah. yeah. They still weigh three, you know, two, two and a half, three tons. And so the focus will still, and still is to be fair, as far as government is concerned, it's still on zero emissions, but also on light weighting. Yeah. And that puts us in the hot seat to be able to 
to get first mover advantage, but also to look at licensing out some of that IP as well to some of these people of, of what we've learned. And of course, with the volumes that we do, and we will be doing in two and three years time, you know, that means someone like a McLaren or a Bentley or an Aston Martin or a Ferrari will say, hey, 150 cars a year. Okay, we could maybe put that on the next CDF or we could maybe put yeah. that on the next, on the next LT, you know, and, and, and that's beginning to attract, attract, uh, attract interest. Mm. Do you, do you 3D print stuff? Actually, we do. Yes. And if, if this laptop was, was, was mobile, I could actually show you the 3D printer that's, that's printed. So, you know, we've, the, the, the 3D printed story, uh, for, for most of your listeners would be familiar with, with what we would call rapid prototyping. So mm-hmm. engineer or designer has an idea. They want to see what the part's going to look like. They don't want to go to all the, the expense of, of us tooling a part and making a part and it taking weeks, months. They want to, they want to have a part here and now. So, you know, 3D printing's been around for a long time. The problem is the materials didn't support those parts to be used in serious production. They just didn't have any strength. Yeah. But there's been some major breakthroughs in, in, in 3D printing materials. And we work with a partner called DSM in Holland and uh, Ultimaker who make the machines. They now have carbon-filled materials. So that means that you're getting the structure that carbon fiber gives you. In fact, in some cases, it's stronger than carbon fiber. And there's no tooling. There's uh, wow. you know infinite flexibility of future change of us making design revisions if, if needed. No tooling cost. Uh, there's obviously the cost of the machine and there's obviously the cost of the materials. But like for like, it's significantly cheaper. And it means that the parts are lighter. And it, and it means that we've got to say we've got this flexibility of change. So... Um, our, our, our 3D printer never stops, actually. It, it, it starts in a print job that's taking three and a half days and already scheduled the next, the next two weeks with the work on it. And it's great because when you're, when you're sleeping at night, this thing's, this thing's working. working of course. And, and that's the other thing that you don't get with the CNC machines parts, you know. Human beings have to go to bed and machines yeah. have to be switched off and, and, and so on. So uh, great bit of innovation that, that we've very much embraced. And I think it's very BAC, I think, as well. Yeah. Can they churn out multiple parts without anyone else being involved now? Or so, do you do one part and then have to reset it up? I mean, it purely depends on the type of 3D printed machine. Okay, yeah. uh, the machine that we have, you can uh, print multiple parts on it. For the level of fidelity and quality in terms of surface finish and things like that, uh, we're using it to make inlet system for, for the engine, for Monoir as an example. Mm. It has to be super, super, super refined because that's, what the air sees going into the engine. But to answer your question, we will just make one part at a time on that particular machine. But there are bigger machines that are several hundreds of thousands of pounds and you can nest 30, 40 parts in there. Um, So it just depends on the size of your investment and the size of your machine. Just depends on your volume aspiration. So we've got what what suits us for now. But we also work with one of our local partners who prints about 30 parts at a time in one of his machines. But the investment for that is, is seven figures. Yeah. It must be so good for the design and sort of engineering side of it, of being able to just, oh, that doesn't quite work. Change it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, before Goodwood and Geneva, you know, we were literally, you know, it was designed on a Monday and a Tuesday, set the print job on a Wednesday, it was on the car on a Friday, you know, <laughs> and it's, and, and it's, and it's amazing. And, you know, Credit to, to, to what we've managed to achieve here with this in this building that I sit in. This is what we call it the BAC Innovation Centre. It's right next door to the BAC Manufacturing Centre. It's in another 11,000 square foot facility. And we sit in an innovation office and literally through the door is what we call our, our design, uh, our innovation studio. It's effectively a pilot hall where we build the first cars. So the yeah. innovation team are right next to it. And in that room, in that space, 
uh, is where the 3D printer is. So it's, 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 it's actually closer to the design team than the printer is to print emails and drawings, actually. <laughs> but and I, and I think that's a sign of the times, you know, and these, the cost of these things is coming down all the time. And it's, it's more accessible to, to kids in schools and universities. Yeah. And it just creates a different way of thinking. It's, it's fantastic. It really is, particularly with these new structural materials. I would have, I would have had a well of time at school if I could have 3D printed stuff because making the objects that you can 3D print, like one, okay, there's loads you just can't make, but having a bit of experience in machining stuff and stuff like that, it just takes forever <laughs> to do something by hand. It, it, it does. I, I think the other thing is, is, you know, depending on your age and your experience, you tend to have a somewhat shackled approach to design because you're designing yeah. something thinking, how am I going to make it? You just design it based on what you want yeah. and not have to worry about that, which is actually quite a, you know, it's quite a blinkered approach actually to just say, I'm not going to worry about how I'm yeah, going to yeah. make it. Then it, it just means other things are, other things are possible. And it really is a breath of fresh air for us. It's not been easy. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not as if you just make something and you press go. <laughs> there's about, there's about 30 different parameters on the machine from the material, how the material is dried, under what temperature, for how long. Uh, the feed rates of the material, uh, the thermal control for the actual 3D printing machine, nozzle sizes, nozzle profiles, you know, all these things mm. affect the result in terms of surface finish, quality, etc. So it's classic R&D stuff, but we're now at a stage where, you know, uh, the innovation team are, are handing it over to the production team. And it's, yeah. great. it's a great thing for us because, yes, we produce a car, but we don't do any CNC or molding or, pe or you know, or grinding or cutting. Yeah. You know, we assemble final parts to our design. And this is the first time we're actually going to make our own parts. Yeah. And it's really exciting, as you can probably, as yeah, you can yeah. probably tell. <laughs> what about, okay, tell me about your wheels. Because I feel like a lot goes into your wheels to make well, them all light. Yeah, so, so you know... The holy grail of weight save really is, is reciprocated on some mass, which is unsprung mass, which, which the wheels and the discs, obviously. About 2014, as part of a, a, a government R&D grant, uh, we, we designed with Surface Transform's local partner, uh, our carbon ceramic discs, and we reduced the weight of the steel brakes by 50% from five kilos uh, down, to, down to two and a half. It's huge, huge savings. Yeah. About the same time, we started to think that the exterior of the car needed needed a lift. Uh, we'd had the standard alloy wheel, which was the lightest 17 inch wheel in the world from, from, uh, for us from, uh, from OZ in Italy. And we started to work with Dymac and working with them on their concept of a two piece wheel. You remember you said that you were, you know, back at university, you were a frustrated engineer mm -hmm. or, or school. Well, you remember I equals MR squared, which is all about yeah. inertia calculations. So the best place to save the weight on the wheel is the extreme circumference of the wheel. And that's why it's made of carbon. Because carbon isn't particularly strong in bending, you'll notice on all carbon carbon wheels, the spokes tend to be quite thick sections to get yeah. the stiffness that they need for the for the axial bending when the cars when the cars cornering. So for us, we what we say is we use the right material in the right in the right area. We use the carbon for the rim, and we use a six thousand series uh, forged billet machined mm. uh, centerpiece. And that was our, our, our original, what we call our carbon hybrid option, option wheel. That is two kilos lighter than the alloy wheel, which we thought was, was, was a huge step forward. And what it was. What does that weigh? Like a kilo? 
<laughs> no, so the uh, I'm going to have to do this math in my head. The current the current car, uh, carbon hybrid option wheel weighs seven point eight kilos. Okay. Yes. The sorry, seven kilos uh, a front that is, and the the front alloy wheel was about nine. So super mm. super light. Yeah, yeah. Nine down to seven. But of course, not content with that, and supported as always by our software partner Autodesk who have this amazing software amongst the many different softwares that we use in our product product development suite and design suite of, of, of softwares, which is called generative design. And what generative design does, it basically takes all your load cases, it takes all of your spatial constraints, and it's, it, it does many, 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 many times. It does an FEA analysis whilst it's designing it. Mm. So rather than a designer saying or an engineer saying, here's my wheel, let's yeah. do some FEA analysis. The analysis comes back and you get some red areas and some green areas. And you think I'll take some weight out of here or I'll add it here, yeah. whatever. It's doing this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds yeah. of times. Because Autodesk software also is the software that writes the program path for the machining. It's constantly checking, can I make it? Oh, okay. Where, where's my, where's, where's my, you know, what's the stress distribution yeah. looking like? In addition to that, you can constrain surfaces to say, no, our design team really like the five spoke. Yeah. And they really like this particular surface. So don't touch these areas, but you can touch other areas. Yeah. And so the wheel that we launched on the, the, the new generation mono at Geneva pool is 1.25 kilos lighter than the current carbon <laughs> hybrid wheel. And that's, so it's 4.8 kilos. That's lighter than a Formula One 13 yeah. inch wheel. Right. So it's, it's really, really, it's not what we, we don't call it lightweight anymore. It's ultra lightweighting yeah. is, is what it is. And, and we're not done with it there either. You know, we'll, 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 even the valve is lighter as well, which is by, I think it's 10 grams. I think the valve is lighter. So but, presumably you, know, you start now applying this process to the rest of the car in the bits that you can do it with. That, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely right. And so what we're, I mean, what you have to know, first of all, is you have to know your loads. You have to know your load cases. Yeah. And what's interesting is, is we add more power and the car gets, the car ultimately gets faster than you're yeah. adding in more load. So, you know, we have to, we have to manage expectations there of getting lighter and lighter and lighter because we're going faster and faster and faster as well. So we have to manage that. But ultimately, yeah, you're absolutely right. We're on this journey with Autodesk, you know, watch this space, but there are other areas on the car that we're targeting. You know, the wheel is a great thing because it's very visual. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes generative design can throw up these kind of very nature inspired structures. Yeah. You probably saw, saw it at Geneva last year on the, on the Bugatti. And so for us, you know, having that aesthetic constraint in there was really interesting. Yeah. But something like a, a bell housing is an example that you don't even see. Yeah. There's no real aesthetic challenges with that. Mm. There's a manufacturing challenge, of course, of how you're going to cast it. And then other areas in the car as well. So yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly what we're going to do over the next 12 months. So lots and lots to talk about in the future. When you press go on that, like the first time you've, you've put in your wheel, you've defined the surfaces, whatever, and you're like, right, run. <laughs> the, like the thing that comes back. Is it, is it, you just look at it and go like, oh, what the hell? That's mental. Or you sort of expect it or presumably well, it gets a bit interesting. It gets very interesting. You probably have to bleep over some of the words that we, <laughs> <laughs> it's just, it's what, it's why we come to work every day. You yeah. know, you know, you're inspired by a new, a new software, working with great people. Of course, the guys at, 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 at Autodesk are fantastic as are. The guys at Dimag as well, they've always got appetite for, for pushing the boundaries. And, and, and of course, the minute you get this first picture off the guy who's, who's machining them, 
Yeah. And it, it's like this viral image that just spreads all around the company. Everyone's like, oh my God, you know, it's like <laughs> WTF type moment, you know? <laughs> and then of course, then when they come here and you're used to seeing them, it's being able to look at them. And, you know, in this case, we've taken a lot of visual mass out around the centerpiece and you can actually stick your fingers through, yeah. through the spokes. And then of course you put it on the car and it all just comes to life. Then everything just looks that's so much thinner. That's yeah. so much cleaner. And it's, it's really in line with the new form language of the new, of mm. the new generation model where all the surfaces have got a thinness to them, you know, very much like a, you know, like a, an athlete where you can see his muscles underneath. You just see the skin that's all tucked yeah. over all these nicely defined muscles, very much nature inspired again. So it works really well with the car. So you, you go from, a component in isolation to a system with it mounted on a on a tire and then you put it on the car and then the car's on the ground and it and it just all it just all comes together Which presumably some of these pieces come back and you know that in theory they should be strong enough but then the first time you put them like test them do you go oh, oh. well that's why we put ollie webb in the car isn't it <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, no joking aside. No, I mean it's. I mean that, that that's that, that's what engineering is, isn't it? Yeah. You know, uh, 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 you know, and these these analysis tools that we have. And, and listen, you know, you know, we're not involved in motorsport here. We're not racing. We're not competing yeah, yeah. against anybody else. So there's a, a significant factor of safety that's always put into these mm. things. If you could take that out and and and, and do what guys in Formula One do or any other motorsport, you know, you could you could go you could go way further. So, so, you know, we always have to, have to err on the side of caution and then some yeah. from a, from a safety perspective. So no, it's, it's more, it's more of a question actually of, of, I know what that will feel like in terms of, cause yeah. I remember when we, we test drove the, the carbon hybrid wheel for the first time, the, the gyroscopic effect in terms of a change of direction, it's, in, it's instantaneously noticeable when you turn into a corner particularly with changes of direction. So turn into a corner, uh, chicanes and so on and so forth. You can, you really, really notice the difference. So, so, so we're expecting to be able to feel that. And that's the next exciting thing. Yeah. Once you've designed something, you've seen it as a component, as a system, and then on the car, it's how does it feel? Because ultimately that's what it's about. It's about making a car drive as well as it looks, which I kind of guess is my job really to, to try and, you know, I, I, I can't take any credit for the way the car looks. Of course, I look at it and say, you know, I like things more than others and uh, as part of the, as the yeah. process, but I can't take any credit for it. But for me to try and make the car drive as well as it looks, that's, that, that's the, that's the brief on the highest level. And, and it, and if, well, you've driven it, you know, and yeah. you'll drive the new one and you'll see, you'll see what it, see what you think. You know, it's, uh, it's next level again, along with various other different modifications that we've made to, for weight distribution and other things. So, okay, we started off with the first mono, which evolved a bit. And then you did the R. Yeah. Right? Yes. Well, yeah. So there's the... the three different iterations of the, of the, of the first car that we made. And then we launched Mono R at Goodwood. Yeah. Last year. And what was the, what are the changes to the R? What's, what's the sort of focus of the R? How's so it different to a normal one? Yeah. So, so, so Mono R effectively was the launch for the, the new aesthetic that you, you see now on the car that was, that was, mm launched at, at Geneva pool. So it's this, it's this move towards this declutter across the front end. You know, you'll notice the lights is the biggest change, the shark front, front nose, every panel has been redesigned. But the thing with the R is, is, is that we knew from a product planning perspective, it was going to be the last hurrah for normally aspirated, mm. uh, purely for, for meeting emission regulations. And that engine, I have to say is, is, is an incredible achievement, not just for a, an SME like ourselves and, and, and Mount Tune, 
they're about a similar size company, but for any yeah. company in the world, it's 137 brake horsepower per liter in terms of specific output. So it's four cylinder, normally aspirated. It's 2.5 again, but it's 343 brake horsepower out of a two and a half liter engine. It's, it's as trick as it gets. It really is. Yeah. And that's why we're only making 30 of them for the lucky people who've bought them. So it's, it's a new record for specific output. And the previous record holder was the four, was the 458 Speciali, one of the best cars yeah. of, of all time, in my opinion. So really pushing the boundaries. It revs to 9,000 RPM, billet crank, all forged internals, complete new inlet system with what we lovingly call the bazooka. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Anchor on the side, which is the... Uh, <laughs> is the thing that defines the car. But I have to say it works, you know, it works. And it, and it effectively, for, for, for your listeners, if you, if you picture it, if you, you know, think back to sort of 70s and 80s Formula One cars where they had these big air scoops, what you're doing there is you're, you're scooping air into the engine, you're forcing air or ramming air into the engine, as we call it. The more air you can put in, the more fuel you can put in, and the mm. more power you can make. That's if you can rev the engine higher, of course, which we now do. Uh, with the billet crank and the 9,000 RPM. So uh, that's how we get the power output that we're producing. And that's why the car looks, looks the way that it looks. And it definitely defines the car. You know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know, it, it's, it, it's, you'll, 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 listeners will, will see it on social media or they'll see it on the road shortly. So yeah, it's definitely noticeable. It's a cool yeah. feature of that car for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like the, the ram air effect, like what sort of power gain do you get over, at like what sort of speed? Like a hundred miles now. Yeah, no, no, but, no that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very clever question. So what happens is, is, is as your, as your speed increases, obviously the pressure increases. And that's where it's essential to be working with the people that we do and at Mount June and our, our friends at specialist components who make the ECU, who do a lot of our mapping work is to make sure that you're putting the right amount of fuel in as that, as the air pressure is getting higher at higher speed. But, you know, to put it into perspective, you know, the height, the faster you go, the more power you're 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 making it's, it's yeah. that it's that simple of course the faster you go the aerodynamic drag that you're creating is also fighting against you the faster you go so and in theory you just keep going faster and faster and faster yeah. which of course you can't uh, and that's why the top speed of monoir is about the same top speed as the current car yeah. because the drag off the air box and pressurizing that air has an effect at, 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 at the VMAX. So VMAX is about the same at around 170, but obviously it's, it's incredibly quick. I mean, it's, it's f- less than five and a half seconds to, to 100 miles an hour, and it just keeps on pulling and pulling and pulling. Mm. It's, it's, it's mega exciting to drive. It's, 
it's on another level altogether. <laughs> but but you know, it, it's you can drive it around town. It's it's as yeah. as usable as as a mono ever was. The you know the car when you look at it just generally you go oh people will use that on track now presumably you haven't designed it just for track and i know you guys have taken them on some big road trips where's the sort of longest distance you've driven in a mono or you guys have taken a mono well it's interesting because the the, the brief wasn't that the, the car looked like a formula one car or you know uh, looked like a group c car mm. or that it, that it looked like a, a road a normal road car that had been molded into a into a gt car if you like it needed to look as home on the road as it did on the track a bit like the panigale superbike we mentioned uh, earlier but in terms of road trips, wow, I mean, some of our customers have done some fairly, fairly incredible things. The chairman of the Mono Owners Club is based in, in Stuttgart in Germany. He's done over 20,000 kilometers on the road with his car without a helmet, right? So he, yeah, so he prides himself on never using a helmet. But, but most of our customers use the car on the road, road and track. There are some who use them just on the track, particularly in the US where it's a very long drive to get to a, yeah. a race resort or a circuit. But by and large, people drive them on the road. One of our customers whose, whose car is actually in build right now for Monoir, he lives in, lives in Holland, northern Holland. And we did an event in Italy, and he drove his mono from Holland all the way down to Milan for a, pi- a private tour of the Pirelli factory, of course, make our, make our tires, the R&D facility there. He did a four-day driving event, which included a track day, and then drove all the way back home <laughs> to Northern Holland. So, you know, we have some real core. Uh, Fair hard, play. Hard, uh, exactly, exactly. What did he do for luggage? Presumably he couldn't carry it all. Well, I mean, there's, there's 70 cubic litres of storage space in the front of the car, um, okay. which is enough for your listeners. Yeah. I'd say that's a reasonable size weekend backpack. Uh, yeah. The idea is that you put, you put that in the front, and when you get out at night to your hotel, you whip it out, take your helmet and steering wheel off, and you lock them in the front. Tonneau cover yep. on there, job done. So, you know, listen, the car's not, it's, it's as practical as it can be for what it's intended. And it's yeah. great to see our customers doing that, actually, because that's, that was always the vision. Yeah, that's, that's what it's all about is making memories in these things. Yeah, it, it, it is. And, and I have to say, you know, kudos to the owners club. They organize some great events, as indeed we do. The one that you attended in Spa was one of those. Mm. We usually team up with other people on track days as well. And, you know, again, looking forward for, for, for this time that we find ourselves in at the moment to get that out of the way and, and, and to start kicking on with some nice events in the UK, Europe and, and, and beyond. Yeah. It's actually quite a good car for social distancing. You can't have a passenger. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the perfect car for social distancing, isn't it? Or, or self, selfish solitude, as we yeah, call it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it, 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 it is. And, and like, like all things that you do on your own, it's great to go running or snowboarding or skiing yeah. or, or cycling or horseback riding on your own. But yeah. of course, yeah, and, there's, and there's a nice solitude to that as well, but it's, it's great to do it with a bunch of people. There's, there's nothing better to see, you know, 10 or 12 monos thrashing around the Isle of Man yeah, know, yeah. Out, over the mountain road or through the Black Forest or Italy or, you know, it's, uh, it's great. And it's, it's massively rewarding for, for Ian and I and anyone associated with the company to see it. Because, you know, we, I, I say to everyone who works here, we're not in the car business, we're in the entertainment business. We're here to put smiles on people's faces. Mm. And, and that's what we do. Yeah. Do, do any owners have two? Do any owners have two? They don't own two cars. Well, the chap I just mentioned, he will, he will keep his current car when he yeah. gets delivery of his R. So there will be, two, there will be people who have two cars. Yeah. What we find is, is there's not many secondhand cars because the owners don't want to get rid of them for one yeah. 
and it's it's quite tribal. I've got to say, the the owners have got a real interesting profile. I think you know a lot of them are entrepreneurs, self-made in most cases. They kind of see what we're doing and kind of bucking the trend of 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 of, of sort of car companies, if you like, and. I think because of our size and the personalities involved, I hope, I think we're a very personal business. Mm. And they love that. You know, they like being able to, to be part of something and part of our journey. And it's, uh, it's great having them along. And a lot of them actually, you know, they're, they're, they're successful and very interesting people. So it's nice to hear how they've achieved their success. Yeah. Nobody wrote the book about how to start a car company, you know, so we, <laughs> we, we're always, we're always learning and we're always listening. So, uh, we always try our best. What have been some of the biggest sort of struggles along the way or interesting stories or things you've got to sort of push through that you wouldn't necessarily anticipate? Without, without making it completely topical, I'd say, I'd say this, uh, you know, this whole COVID-19 thing is, you know, within the space of uh, two weeks, I think when it really, really, really flared up and, you know, the government's announced lockdown. We had our own kind of policies here internally and we, ne- we don't really struggle with space in here anyway. Yeah. With, you know, with 22,000 square foot and, and 20 odd people, we've got plenty of space. But the problem, of course, was our suppliers. They were just yeah. literally closed down, closed down, closing down, closing down. Then what do you do with staff? And, and literally on an hour by hour basis, it was, it was kind of, you know, crisis management. But you've just got to approach it with a level head and just try and do what's appropriate, do what's right. Say that you've, you've made the right decisions by and large over the last sort of 10, 11 years since we started the company. I think we've made the right decisions with the people who are either working from home or furloughed. And we've got, you know, a skeleton staff in here at the moment and the project team who are involved with Monoir. And other than driving home and not seeing any cars on the road, it, it, it's a real weird feeling. You know, it doesn't seem as if daily business has changed that much. Yeah. But the reality is, is, is that it has. And, you know, whenever life gets back to normal, whatever normal will look like. So I think that's probably been the biggest challenge because everything else, Sam, is just what I call work. Yeah. You know, uh, certainly designing the car is when you've got the skilled people that we've got and we've been doing it as long as we have before BAC and, 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 and during BAC, work is work, you know. So yeah. if you, if you, it's not as if any problem is insurmountable. There's always a solution mm. there. I think the, you know, the biggest challenge for us has actually been to try and run a business that's continually expanding. You know, we're across 40, 40 countries now in terms of exports, which is just ridiculous, is to try and keep doing what's appropriate for a business that's continually growing, yeah. making sure that we don't get too ambitious with some of the things that we're doing and making sure we look after our customers first and foremost and our employees and, of course, our suppliers. So, Yeah. Do you get a lot you – know, at the moment, we're sort of in this like funny stage and we've had some motor shows cancelled – and then the sort of chat of whether actually people will go back to motor shows again. Anyway, as as a manufacturer, do you do you get a lot out of certain motor shows? Do you go to a lot, or how do you sort of see it panning out in the future? And, and what works for you guys? I mean, I've got to say, you know, you spoke about some of the setbacks. I'd say with you know, COVID was was one, but I think arguably the biggest disappointment of my entire professional career was uh was what happened with geneva and it was absolutely yeah. the right decision you know don't don't get me wrong but you know you design a show car to be shown at a show and it's a it's a point in time there's a lot of investment and energy that goes into it with everyone in the company you know and and and, and i'm not going to say that for us you know oh, it doesn't matter whether there'll be a motor show at geneva mm-hmm. next year that absolutely has to be in my mind 
and and you know our stand was you know strategically placed opposite Ferrari and McLaren because that's yeah. the kind of guy who buys our who buys boat who buys our cars. You know, we had so much business lined up to do great business. And, you know, I wasn't just disappointed for, for us. I was disappointed for our suppliers who supported us and some yeah. cases worked over Christmas and New Year. I was disappointed for our employees as, as, as well because being, being so close to Liverpool Airport here, when we can see the runway from here, we can walk yeah. to the, the easy, easy, uh, easy jet check-in in like five minutes. We had every single employee on a day trip to come out there and, 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 and in a non-working capacity to say, just go and have a look, walk around the show and, and be part of, feel proud yeah. and feel proud of the fact that we're rubbing shoulders with these incredible brands at, at this show. And, and that was, so it's it hugely disappointing. Now when I think about it, I'm still, yeah, yeah. I, I think I've got over it, but but actually I haven't. I don't think I will until we, we kind of have our pound of flesh in that sense. But to answer your question, I, I think, I think we still need good events like yeah. Goodwood Festival of Speed, like the Geneva Auto Show, you know, whether it's Villa Desta. I mean, you go to a lot of these great things, you, you know what they are. I think we absolutely do. Um, this is great. Of course it is. And it's something new, but I think what it, what this situation will do is open up our eyes to other things, but I don't think yeah. it will say that it's only one solution. And for sure, if Geneva happens next year and they're fair about the cancellation, then I think, I think most people will go back. I think, yeah. but yeah, I mean, we, Goodwood traditionally has been for the last five years has been our, our major investment for most mm. of our marketing budget. And that's probably gone too commercial. I think probably now. And certainly at that price point, you know, you can go and have a two week show at Geneva and, and be positioned in amongst all the manufacturers and not just the local dealer who's part of a show. It's yeah. part of the major manufacturer. It's Ferrari Italy who put yeah. on their stand. It's Bentley from Crew put that stand. So you're not just rubbing shoulders with these brands. You're rubbing shoulders with the, with, with the top people in these companies. And of course, there's, there's conversations to be had and, and customers to be, to do business with. So uh, I, I think, yes, absolutely. They, they will happen. What, 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 what do you think? What's your thoughts? I, I think. For me, I think it's much more important for small, smaller brands like yourselves that sell high-end cars. I think they of, of people I know, like let's say companies like Koenigsegg, Pagani, let's say you guys, Roof, someone like that, Geneva. I know a ton of people that go to Geneva and it's their one show of the year and they go to look at all the cars and they buy cars. And the smaller companies, you are meeting your customers like that are going to buy cars. Whereas if you're Ford or something, like you're not, people don't go to the show to buy a car. But I'm pretty sure someone like you guys must take tons of deposits at Geneva, maybe at Goodwood, and then the rest of the year sort of you know works itself out. But they're stuck, they're major events for those companies. But I love the show. But I love the show because I go and I talk to everyone and I talk to people from the manufacturers. And like you said, it's getting everyone in one place, whether it's Goodwood or whatever. And you can see all the people you want to see in two days. Whereas to go and see them, you've got to fly to different parts of the world to go and see everyone. And then obviously I get to see all the cars and whatever. But just as like a Joe Public type person, to fly to Geneva to go and see the cars is is not... It's It's a good day, but... It's not particularly interesting. I'd wait prefer something like Festival of Speed, where you see everything moving, 
people that put straight pipes on their car, you see them sliding around, you know, it's like someone like Ollie's just like mm. tuning up the hill. That for me is way more important as, as like a normal person seeing, experiencing these things. Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, in an ideal world for us, we, we'd do a mixture of, of, of both events like that. Mm. And certainly next year, that, you know, that's, that's maybe what we'll be looking at, actually. I, I, I definitely agree with your point about, you know, the, the kind of high net worth individual who goes and buys a car because he'll go, he'll say, I'm going to do my car, my car shopping for the next two or three years. And I'm going to go to Geneva and I'm going to go on the Ferrari stand. I'm going on the Lamborghini and the Porsche stand and the McLaren stand. Oh, and oh, what's this? Oh, wow. I never even knew you guys existed. Oh, I've seen you for, for so many years, but I've never had the opportunity to come and say hi. And you know what? Every time Goodwood is around, it's always a bit difficult for me to get to it or whatever. Yeah. And they're the kind of customers that we've that we've missed out this year on. But you know, we 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 can't cry in our beer for too long. If it goes ahead next year, we'll be there and we'll do some great business there as well. But I agree with you that you know, particularly for our car, to see, hear, smell, look, see the excitement around these cars, it's also interesting as well. So you know, long live events like Goodwood and, and, and Shelsley and, and, and things like that. But also I think Geneva and New York Auto Show also is pretty good as well. Mm. And, and selected auto shows around the world. I still think they'll happen is my personal feeling. Yeah, yeah, I, I, th- I think so. I don't think we're going to change drastically. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of companies will look at it and go, ooh, there's there's a certain amount for me as a, as a consumer of all of these new cars getting dumped on like onto the internet on one day i think it's just stupid like it's it's not great quite often people have rubbish photos which some people will say is oh that's because you then need to go and see the car but if i see a rubbish photo i don't necessarily want to go and see the car um yeah i, I think i think there's everyone's vying for the same column space or or, yeah. or, or instagram posts aren't they and and it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's another new car and another new car and another new car. I, I don't know what cars, I mean, obviously we've seen some new cars that were launched and what we would have kind of been, you know, in that cauldron of new cars being launched. But that's why I think new car, lo- I think new car launches will take a different, a different approach. I don't think yeah. it will be cover comes off at Geneva necessarily. I do think car shows will be part of a marketing mix moving forward of how that's done. Yeah. Cause I do still think you need that. That, that big show element for all the reasons that we mentioned earlier. Yeah, yeah, definitely. The unveiling, they always can leak anyway now. Like, it's very difficult for people not to have these photos leak. And then you've seen some really weird stuff with with some companies chasing down the people that leaked it. And it's like, it might be one of their customers who's yeah. just shared it with some mates. Yeah. And then they go and like harangue them. <laughs> like, this is not what you do to your customers. They don't <laughs> appreciate it. Right, can we get onto the new car? Yes, of course, let's. So tell me about the new car. So the new Mono, which was launched at Geneva Pool, and just a word on Geneva Pool, we kind of combined Geneva with Liverpool and we held an event here in our innovation studio and we turned it into a into a kind of mini auto. So there are three cars mm. that should have been on the stand were on there. The new car specifically, it takes the same aesthetic of, of the new reference of our design DNA, if you like, which was first shown on, on Mono R at Goodwood last year. 
And that specifically is all about this efficiency in the surfacing. So every body panel has changed. It still looks like a mono. Of course, it yeah. looks like a 911. It just looks like a 911. But every panel has changed. The height of the car has been reduced by 15 millimeters, a complete declutter around the front end. The engine makes more power. Therefore, it needs more cooling. So therefore, the radiators need to be bigger. And how do you, um, and what do they need? They need more air. How do you do that? You reduce frontal area. But we've embraced that and made this kind of sharks uh, feature at the front of the car. Uh, we've gone from four lighting elements down to two with, with essentially mounted sort of launch ETE class inspired um, main beams, which are in the nose of the car. Because they're there, we've had to relocate the battery, which is for, for, for polar moment of inertia reasons is now closer to the driver, which helps with weight distribution. But in essence, that whole design DNA is all new. Uh, some really trick lights on there. It also uses the graphene technology, which we mm. pioneered with Mono R. So again, significant weight saving. But I think the biggest headline on the car is the forced induction engine. So it's the yeah. first time in our history we've moved away from, from naturally aspirated to forced induction. And again, working, working hand in glove with our, uh, our friends and colleagues at, at Mountune. So the engine is, is a 2.3 liter, uh, forced induction engine produces 332 brake horsepower over 400 newton meters of torque, which is quite staggering. What's um, that up from the previous? Well, it's 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 up from three hundred and three hundred and twenty newton meters, okay, so big, it's a huge, bump. it's a huge, it's a big bump in in torque. So we've obviously got things like uprated drive shafts, wheel bearings, gearboxes uprated as well to, to handle the additional torque, and then of course all of the plumbing that that, be, that is associated with a turbo car, because of course of course most turbocharged cars are usually front engined or rear end or, or, or mid engined, which means that you can take air in at one end. Um, you can cool it, goes to the engine, turbocharge, and force it in, and then obviously exhaust gases is quite easy to package. But for us, having the engine transvert, sorry, longitudinally mounted, it's quite complicated with air passing, you know, all around. And then you've got, of course, the water radiators and intercoolers and so on. We've come up with a real neat package, which I'm very, very pleased with. So in essence, where the mono R bazooka is on the side of the car, that aperture in the bodywork, is where the inlet for the turbo is. And so mm. other than that, the exterior of the car almost looks identical actually to Mono R. But I think the, uh, the, 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 the big challenge with that car is the first time that we've been work, we've, we've worked with the turbocharged engine. Of course, it's very well understood by, by David and the guys at Mountune, but being able to give the car that BAC DNA of way that the way the power is delivered with this progressive power delivery, that kind yeah. of normally aspirated feel. And I think, you know, you look at the way McLaren do it, you look at the way Ferrari do it, particularly with the 488, you know, you go and drive a 488, people say, wow, I, you know, it just feels like a, a naturally aspirated yeah. car. And that's all about how the torque is managed at the lower RPM and is progressive. And we've, we've done the same with that car. Um, uh, yeah, that was, that was going to be my question is like, how have you structured the power delivery? And you've gone for, you've aimed for a, a sort of normally aspirated-esque, smooth, drivable profile. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's not completed yet. You know, there's still there's some work we'll be doing this summer as part of the sign off and, and the emission sign off process in, in in Germany. But you know, early signs are very positive at this stage that it will mm. feel like a mono. It's quite interesting because there's you know we spoke about the vibration. You know, the higher rev an engine, obviously, yeah. you've got, you know, predominantly second and fourth order resonances that that, that dominate with a with a four cylinder engine. And they change on a turbocharged car massively. So, you know, it may well be that that refinement that some of our customers have, 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 have been looking for 
will come with the turbocharger just as it mm. could be it could be a win-win in that respect and then you'll get all the turbo <laughs> yeah well noises. there you go yeah and of course the clack from it's going to be quite the quite the orchestral symphony going down the road <laughs> with turbos whistling and popping and, and gear shifts so yeah it's, that's exciting when when were the first customer cars be delivered so uh quarter three 2021 so just over what 12 to 14 months now yeah mm. yeah so first cars already pre-sold a nice a nice handful of those which is good to places like hong kong japan uk america but of course the main target market for that was mainland europe because mainland yeah. europe is pretty hard to penetrate from a mission perspective particularly germany italy belgium holland uh spain France, etc. Those those you know, key 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 markets for us, hmm. and pretty much on our doorstep as well. Really, you know, it's not it's not a twelve hour flight around the world somewhere to go yeah. and meet our customers. It's pretty local, so that's the big excitement. Really, is, is how we can further develop the business and and, and increase the annual volumes. Hmm. Who do you, who do you see as your biggest competitor? Huh. <laughs> it's an interesting one. Anything that is is being bought in the luxury goods sector, I guess, is yeah. probably, you know, nobody buys a mono instead of another car. Yeah, it's not as if you're going to buy this car or A or B. Yeah, yeah. Um, you buy it in addition to. And so in that sense, it's not as if someone says, well, you know, I'm going to buy a mono or I'm going to buy something else. It's no, I see and I want it. They might say, well, actually, for that money, I might want the latest Richard Miller watch, or I might yeah. want another Richard Miller watch, or I might want an upgrade for, you know, I need to buy the, the wife a nice horse or whatever. Yeah. I mean, you know, these, these, these guys are, you know, they're, they're male, first of all. I've got a lady owner yet. They're male. They are typically between sort of 30 and 60. Uh, they're successful entrepreneurs. They like nice things. They like the performance. They like the appearance of the car. They like to drive it on the road. They like to drive it on the track. And so for them, they're looking at what the cars that they've got and they're saying, do I really need five or six two seat GT supercars? You know, they kind of all do the same job. Yeah. Um, so maybe I might cull a little bit and get rid of one or two, but that's just part of a, a cleansing process. Mm. We call it right tool for the right job. And we're just shining a torch down a rabbit hole for people to say, Hey, yeah. you know, this car will do this job. You go back to the original things we were chatting about at the, at the start of the talk you know do you really want to be taking a i don't know a la ferrari or a, these million pound cars on track and just run the risk of, of the thing yeah, going wrong not and, for me <laughs> you know but people could all say well yeah your car's 200 grand i don't want to do it with, with your car either but it's, for these is- guys it's the right tool for the right job and you know this thing's lapping silverstone not that much slower than, uh, or about the same speed as a, as a GT car at eight hundred thousand euros. The running what's cost. A, what's a Silverstone lap time? Well, Mono is going to be Mono is going to be pretty close. You know, I mean, we haven't done it yet. We've ran 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 prototypes a couple of years ago around there on slicks, and it was you know four or five seconds quicker than a Senna. So what's that? Two two something. Two like that? two ten. Chris uh, Chris Harris yeah. did in the first Senna that was delivered. Yeah. And, you know, Mr. Webb was doing, you know, two minutes, four, two minutes, five in, in, in what was really a hybrid between the current car yeah. and Mono R. I think he'll get close to two, you know, which that, that's, that, that's block yeah. band GT car lap times, you know, 800,000 yeah, euros. It is, isn't it? You know, have you had a lot of struggles with tires over the years being a car that's so light? That's a great question. Actually not. No. I mean, we, we, uh, we met the guys from, from Kumho many years ago 
through a connection at, at Manchester United, funny enough, they sponsored Man United and they were very keen to, they were very active in, they, they sponsored the European F3 Championship and they were very keen to make use of their marketing activities in motorsport onto the road and their, their performance tyre range. They, they made two versions for us because of our weight and they did what we call our soft and our super soft variants. And we've had a great relationship with Kumo and the tyre's been great. But over two and a half years ago, we've, we met Pirelli. You mentioned shows earlier. It was actually at the Autosport show we met them. And they came to us and said, hey, listen, we need to we need to talk about a collaboration. Mono R gets us a standard fit, as indeed the new generation Mono does a bespoke front and rear version of their um, Trofeo R road tyre, which is just incredible. Bearing in mind, legislation is getting harder and harder and harder to meet with things like rolling resistance and tyre yeah. noise and all these things just for environmental good reasons. And to be able to produce a tyre that's got at least the same performance as the old Kumo, but within all those more restrictive constraints yeah. is, is, is a brilliant effort. It's ever so flattering for us that they are interested in working with such a small company as ourselves when really from a business case perspective, it's, you know, the volumes are not even worth talking about yeah. compared to the normal levels of volume. But it's their motorsport department that we're working with. The tyres are made in the same facility as the F1 and F2 tyres in Turkey. It's that access of the engineers. And for them, it was all about the technical challenge. It was okay. how do we get this performance in this tire and the, for a vehicle that only weighs this, this, yeah. this level of, and, and, and you know, we spoke about lightweighting earlier and, and why we're at the forefront of innovation because some of the solutions that we're driving, who knows in five, 10, 15 years time, you know, when vehicle weights are being driven down all the time with some of this know-how that's baked into some of those, mm. some of those solutions. But Pirelli have been an absolute joy to work with. They were, uh, and still are, they're a fantastic bunch of people and, and their tire is just, it's fantastic. And not only do we have the Trofeo R tire, which you can use, of course, on the road or the track, but we also have a bespoke slick tire now and an extreme wet tire. And the great thing is that all of those three sizes are interchangeable. So it doesn't compromise the ride height or the pitch right. of the car when you change all of those different tires. Do you have to adjust the suspension much for in between those or not really? No, not at all. No, no. So cambers, cambers all remain the same. There's a, a very cunningly when you go from the road tire to the slick tire, it lowers the car by five mil and gives it, gives it three mil more rake, which yeah. is what you'd want when you go on track. So yeah, it's, it's been great. A really good, fantastic bunch of people. And it's a mega tire as well. Something that I've always wondered, when you get a bespoke tire, like let's say for my GT3, you have to get an N-rated N1 or whatever, Cup 2R or something, whatever they're called. And how does that, let's say your tire, your Trophy R, differ to just like, I say just a Trophy R, but I don't know whether they're all bespoke, but let's say you put the McLaren tire on the mono yeah how different is it and like how how different like what do you feel it like how does it, how does it uh, work? So, so so the short answer is is uh, and probably won't want reminding of this we went through 16 different iterations of front and rear tire so first of all because of the the cornering forces involved that the car generates we ha they had to completely redesign the sidewall of the of the tire, of course, again because of the forces. The compound of the tire is is changed dramatically, which is relatively easy in tire in tire development terms. But the way the construction of the tire is, the way uh, all of the various different layers are made up, was completely different. So 
the fact that it says Trofeo R on the size is about the only thing <laughs> that links it to other Trofeos. And what's great is, and it's, 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 a, it's a shame that your, your listeners are listening to this and they can't see it, but they'll see it on our Instagram page if they, if they go look, is that it's got mono written on the side, on the sidewall, oh, in, right, you yeah. know, on the sidewall of the tire. So there's always that easily weight, a bit, a bit like you talk, spoke about yeah. your, 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 your speed rating on your tires. And it was great. You know, there was, there was myself, Ollie Webb and, and Anthony Reed, who we, we did a lot of development at Angle Seat Mega Circuit yeah. that you know well. And yeah, we spent many a day up there testing back to back. And that's what, that's what, that's what engineering is. You know, it's, it's yeah, great. Yeah. Those, those days are great. And Angle Seat's a mega place to just have one mono and the red arrows, you know, testing up above, you know, around the, the island yeah, of Angle cool. Seat. They're, they're, they're the better days they are for sure. <laughs> That's one of those things that I've always sort of wanted to do because you get, let's say, a company like yours, and you, they say, "Okay, we've done a we've done a new set of brakes, or the wheels are three kilos lighter, or whatever." But you only ever get to drive the one with the carbon ceramics or the one in that setup. You never get to back to back different tires or back to back different setups on the same car or same spec car, same day, same place to really get a feeling of how they're different. And when people sometimes ask me, you know, like what's the difference between carbon ceramic brakes or normal brakes and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, better. Yeah. But, but like, I can't tell you in specifics because I haven't managed, I haven't been able to drive all of the exact stuff, the same car back to back. It's, it's quite a rare thing to be able to do now, actually. Well, yeah. obviously, as an engineer, you, you do it all day long. Yeah, and that's that, that's why we have a process where you start off with the baseline and then you just make various different step changes so you can always compare. But what what I do think is great, and it's a great feature that we've got on the car, is the adjustable suspension. So yeah. you can adjust the bump and the rebound on the dampers and depending on, you know, so the car leaves the factory with factory settings on it. And we have recommendations for certain drivers if the car's doing certain things in certain situations or if people have preferences that they want yeah. more and more rotation or whatever. And the look on people's faces and when, you know, and then of course that's the conversation in the bar and like, did you put those extra four clips on? <laughs> uh, and you, then you, you mess with them and you'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. And completely softened off the rear. And then, and then you see all these women just running for cover because there's all these blokes <laughs> sat around talking damper settings and uh, clicks on their dampers and stuff. But uh, no, that's what it's a sign of a good car that you make a small change like that and you can feel it. Yeah. Um, and I think it's part of the attraction as well is that they get to learn the car as, as the kind of factory setting mm. and they then get to tailor it and get quicker and quicker as they, as they get more and more used to the car. You know, you can grow with the car like, like any sport, you know, like say, for example, skiing, you start off on a blue run and then you end up on a red run or a black run or off piste or whatever. Yeah. And it's the same with, you know, with cycling and any other, you know, other, other single person sports, mm. you know, and it's, and it's a challenge. And I think our customers like that actually, you know. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's cool. It's actually one of the things I really like about playing uh, car games on like a PlayStation or something because you can mess with all these damper settings and stuff and it is the same as if you'd done the change on a car in the real world. So you can exp- I can experiment with changing settings and getting a vague feel for how it changes because if I'm in my Radical, for example, I'll come back in and they'll be like, okay, well, what do you want to change or do you want to change anything? How's the car feel? And my first question is, well, I don't, 100% know whether I'm driving it correctly to start with. So, like, we could start changing stuff, but I don't know. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's it's certainly something that we've, we've thought about. We don't want to overpower people with too many things that you can mm. change on a car. 
And I think it's important that that people understand, like you say, how you're actually driving the car because you could be changing gear at the wrong time. You could be braking too late into a corner that's causing the car to, to be unsettled at the rear, for example. There's lots of different things. And so we, we try and encourage people to be able to repeat what they're doing because they might not drive the same from one exactly. lap to the next as you, as you probably know yourself. So, and I think, but I think that in itself is, is what's part of the ownership experience as we spoke about skiing and snowboarding and cycling and things is that you're more, you know, you're more aware that you need to be thinking about what you're doing, mm. you know, beyond this changing gear and, 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 <laughs> and, and, and sawing at the wheel. You need to try and step back a little bit and try and, and try and suck it in and say, right, okay, so what am I actually doing? Where am I breaking? When am I changing gear? And break a corner down into four or five different elements and, and get better at it because these guys know when they get better, they'll go quicker and they'll have more fun. Yeah. Um, so that's part of the education, I think, that they enjoy. Yeah. Do you do like a driver training program or anything like that? We, we, it's definitely something which we're looking to develop and do certainly be more active with it. The guys, usually when we do a, an experience event, the one you came to on Spa, mm. we'll also use it as an opportunity for people to do test drives who are looking to buy and we do a lead follow scenarios. And in that case, there's quite a bit of interaction with the, with the lead driver. What we want to try and get to now is, is that we've got customers who also bring their cars on those days. It's a nice community, but we want them to be in a position where they can start bouncing things off, off drivers. Usually there's a good relationship with some of the technicians, but it's nice to have a personality and, you know, an Ollie Webb or Adam Chrysler Duda as an yeah. example, these kind of people where, you know, that they, you know, they're bouncing around ideas. They're getting some advice. It's, it, it's. I mean, McLaren are fantastic at it with their, yeah. with their pure McLaren. Yeah, they're very stuff, good. You know, very good. That's certainly the benchmark for me, at least. Mm, yeah, definitely. Right. Well, I normally sort of wrap these up with five questions. Ah. Are you Are you ready? Yes. Okay. Go ahead. First question: Five car garage, unlimited value, and you can't have five monos. <laughs> right. Well, I'm, I'm looking around my office here because I'm a bit of a car model geek collector, actually. Oh, you can get some of these out for, for the people that are watching on YouTube. They're actually in a, in a glass box in most oh, cases, no. but let me see if I can, let me see if I can get some of the miniature versions, which are a bit more accessible. <laughs> so this is, this is an absolute straight winner. This is, uh, Lance, oh, nice. Stratos, Lance Stratos. This is uh, a very famous car, this one. I've got our friends at Pirelli will be happy with the, with the Marco Alain oh, one. Nice. And I've, I've got five. So got a couple like, of I've got, I've got five Lancia Stratuses. There you go. That's the question. <laughs> uh, obviously, yeah, obviously a mono, definitely. Yeah. Lancia Stratos. Which mono? I'd, I've, I'd, I'd, I'd have to have mono R. It's, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, with the magnesium components on it and everything and the power in the engine and the last hurrah. I mean, I've actually got an amazing model of a Zonda R for all the same mm. reasons. I think that's the best car they've ever made. So, so we started off with the Stratos and it'd be the group four version, the rally version yeah. for sure. I'd also have. Would you take uh, that rallying or just hooning? Just driving around. I think I'd do a bit of posh rallying. So some of these kind of Eiffel rally type events, you know, yeah. these tarmac events. Yeah. 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 Uh, those kind of thing. Then I'd have a Mark II Escort. Cool. So again, that would be a 1978 RS1800 kind of Roger Clark type 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 car. Definitely need a Group B car. Mm. I'm, I'm quite rally. Uh, yeah. So I'd, I'd definitely have a Group B car. And I'm torn on Group B. I love the RS200. John Wheeler is a personal friend of mine who designed the car and worked with him a long time ago. 
So I'm just going to have to say Group B rally car there because I, I love oh, the. Come on, I love, come on. Well, I love the six R four, and I love that. I'm just looking at the um, and I love the. Let's go RS two hundred. RS two hundred. So it's it's two Fords and a Lancia. Yeah. Do you have then a daily I, driver in this scenario? Uh, well, my daily driver's an i8. I've had one for five years, oh. and I think it's an incredible car, and, it, and I'll have it for the foreseeable. So maybe we've got to throw that in there. And I've said a mono, so there's, there's five, isn't it, I think? So, uh, uh, you had mono. Uh, did you have a Stratos? Stratos, yeah. RS-200. RS-1800. Oh, and of course, I'll have to say 458 Speciali Ferrari, which for mm. me is, is, is just pure symphony engine performance. Just, just Yeah, they are pretty great yeah. and pretty fun to drive. Yes. Right, next question. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life and you're allowed like a 500 pound beater on the side. Right. So it's one car for 500 quid. No, 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 no. You, oh, no you've got one car. Yes. And then well, you've technically got two. You've got one car, any car, and then you've got a 500 quid car that you can like put luggage in or whatever. Ah, okay. On the side. Well, so I it guess. it doesn't have to be four seats. Okay. Right. Got you. I guess that, I, I mean, I own a, I own a Ferrari 360 Moderna with it's all Manual? Got, uh, it's Finals. manual, yeah. No, it's manual, yeah. Left-hand drive. Uh, I bought that nearly 20 years ago. And that's, oh, wow. that's, that's, that's going to, uh, my two boys when I'm in the ground, um, nice. in the, in the, in the very distant future, I hope. So I guess it'd be that because I've had that for t- nearly 20 years and I'm never going to get rid of that. Yeah. And the I8 is the daily driver. So, mm. you know, yeah, there okay. you go. There we go. Okay. What do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment? What do you think is cheap? relative to what it should be i think in terms of value for money i think the fiesta st as an example is mm. an incredible car for its performance and and capability undervalued i mean i know that the i8 is a second hand are we talking second hand now or brand new yeah, yeah. Uh, any like second hand new I, anything i mean i think the i8s the i8s at the moment are uh, are incredible second hand buy they're never going to be repeated i think they're going to mm. be a few future classic for me I love that car. I can get my three kids in it. I can be a bit of a hooligan when it's safe to do it. And I can, I can drive it in full electric mode. I think it's, it's an incredible car. What is a secondhand I8 nowadays? Yeah. Or is there I mean, something you don't want to know? <laughs> yeah. I think you're looking at about 50 grand for a three year old one. You know, they're a hundred and ten grand car. Nine eleven's a great value for money as well, aren't they? But I wouldn't say they're undervalued. I, I think I will go for the I8. How's that? Cool. Yeah. And final question. What's the most interesting car to you at the moment? What are you sort of looking up, Googling, watching videos of, being like, ooh, that's interesting? I'm going to be boring and I'm going to say I'm, I'm dreaming about building uh, an RS1800 <laughs> ra- ra- rally car. So at the yeah, moment, yeah. I'm, I'm, looking at, um, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at into all those different components. For, in terms of modern day cars, though, yeah. and technology, I think Polestar are doing some pretty amazing things. Okay. Uh, I like I like what they're about in terms of a brand. It's quite difficult to be, you know, the area that I'm from is V8s, V6s, inline fours, inline sixes, V12s, you know, turbos, yeah. and now it's electric motors and, and battery management systems. Mm. So I think what that's doing is it's driving more of a focus on design, aesthetic appearance, and interaction, and so on and so forth. And I think Polestar are are in, are in some great great places I keep our eye on on what what mike fluid and the guys are doing at mclaren i think i think they're doing amazing things they've got some great people great technology and suppliers and of course porsche i think they're doing some amazing things as well with their with their new product but it's hard isn't it you know with new things that come out 
you see the kind of press information that's given yeah. out and then it's only after six months or nine months a year do you really get the real the real world i suppose yeah like um used in the uk or whatever and yeah i i mean i, I think it's an amazing time to be involved in the car industry at the moment with 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 whether it's mild hybrids or or, or evs or whatever we'll go for yeah. polestar how's that yeah cool yeah 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 cool well that wraps up the podcast thanks very much Thanks very much for coming on. No, pleasure. And thanks for listening. Yeah, it was good. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.